around. It's a blessing and privilege for you guys to be here. I'm, I'm not sure how many of you came for this or for the free Chick-fil-A, so I'm sorry for the disappointment on that one. Um, but I have a couple of, of boys at home, and uh, our oldest is um, a five-year-old, and our oldest uh, loves working with tools. Um, he has a growing collection of tools. His grandparents and family members have given him tools over the years, and he actually has uh, a growing, uh, a bigger collection of tools now than myself, so my shame to admit. Um, but he actually has growing confidence to give counsel, even to daddy when he works on projects. Like, this is how you should do it. And it's really cute, until it's not. <laughs> um, and sometimes I actually have to remind my son, like, no, we're not going to use a hammer to change a light bulb. We're not going to do that. Um, so my, my son has, he has insight, uh, he has passion, um, but sometimes that needs to be kind of taken with a grain of salt. And uh, I kind of feel like that before you today. Like, I'm excited about this, I'm energetic about this, I've been given the opportunity to research this, but that doesn't make me a guru or expert in this. And when uh, Jeff and I talked about this last year, I said I'll, I'll come and talk to the group. As long as I'm not hailed as some guru or expert, I've been given the opportunity to, to research this, think about this, but I'm a co-learner with you. And so I'm really excited to engage this discussion uh, with you. It might be helpful to know, before I started on staff at uh, Calvary, I'm at Calvary Baptist in Greenville. Before I started there about nine years ago, I actually had a lucrative position in retail management. And uh, what I mean by that is I was an assistant manager at a gas station. <laughs> lucrative is a relative term. Uh, but uh, I graduated in, uh, from my undergrad in uh, business management, and I wanted some sort of job to start off with that offered management training. And Speedway gas station offered a management training program, so I was like, okay, I'll go for that. And it was this three-month immersive experience of being trained in the ins and outs of managing a gas station. And so you had staff management, you had uh, everything from inventory and the like, and the end of that three-month uh, immersive experience, you're expected to be able to manage a store for a week. It's kind of like the final test. And uh, part of the training of this uh, three-month process is you had um, a couple-day experience where you go off, were sent off on this retreat for their food training program. And so you're effectively trained how to cook the Speedway hot dog. <laughs> so, so it was this multi-day retreat. And, um, but I just remember walking away from this retreat just amazed because the guy speaking at the retreat was just jacked up excited. And uh, he was energetic. He was thrilled about his job. And I thought, this guy either loves his job or he's drank way too much caffeine. <laughs> and, uh, but I just remember thinking to myself, he is so excited about this. He's, he's trained. Just remind me, he's, he's teaching people how to effectively cook a hot dog in a gas station. But he was excited about it. And uh, if, if somebody can get excited about training people to cook a hot dog in a gas station, how much more excited should we be about training up leaders in the church? And that should be our burden. That should be our passion. If somebody can be passionate about that in a gas station, then we most certainly should be passionate about that in the local church. And uh, Speedway Gas Station is not the only place that understands leadership development. Um, a couple of months ago, my wife and I had the privilege to purchase a Costco membership. So you might be big fans of Costco. So we've become pretty big fans of Costco since getting our membership. And um, there's a guy in our church that actually was an executive at Costco in, in store management. And he said there's like this cult-like loyalty among Costco employees. And broader speaking, in, in terms of like retail industry, uh, turnover is like 60-70% in retail. Costco is 7%. And the uh, question is why? Why is it so different at Costco? And one of the major um, priorities in Costco is that they invest within. This, this uh, member of our church family, for instance, for, for his paternity leave, so paternity leave, he was given six weeks for paternity leave. And that may also explain why they have five children. <laughs> 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 you need another vacation, honey. <laughs> um, 
but this is this this mentality of investing. They take good care of their employees, but they also have what's called Costco U. They invest in their executives, so they're, all of their executives have store level experience, but also all their store managers go through this pr pretty intensive program of training uh, from within. And so, if, if gas stations understand this, and if grocery stores understand this, how much more so should we in the local church understand the importance of investing within? And uh, part, part of my burden for this actually really began when I was going through my, my MDiv here in Grand Rapids. We were expected uh, to go through a residency program as part of our, our curriculum, and it was a four-semester uh, residency. And uh, it was okay for me because I was full-time on staff, and we were allowed to integrate our experience uh, on staff at a church if we were on staff. But a lot of the guys I went to school with didn't have that context, and so they were kind of asked to go off and find a church that would sponsor them in a residency. And oftentimes what happened is what uh, kind of be became known is that for a church anyways, I was looking for a resident or accepting a resident, what that meant was a resident equaled a free toilet scrubber. Like it essentially was these, these guys were basically accepting free labor. And rather than taking it as an opportunity to invest into interns or residents, it was basically just an opportunity to receive some free labor on the side. And so a lot of these guys have gone through this experience. Some would say it was great and beneficial. Others would say, you know, it wasn't all that transformative because the churches weren't all that invested into me. And I just see that as a massive missed opportunity. We have, we have men training for ministry that are actually looking to be invested into. Yet there weren't churches on the other side looking to make that investment. And what I would love to see is that flipped. That we actually have a surplus of healthy churches looking for residents. More so than there actually are residents looking for that sort of training. So that's really what I want to talk about today. And so we're going to begin, if you have the handout, with the biblical mandate. What is the expectation from scripture standpoint for this, because if we're not convinced that Scripture actually calls us to this sort of work, we're not actually going to give ourselves uh, to this priority. And uh, I think it's also important to know if, if we say something's a priority, uh, but it's not reflected in our schedule, it's not actually a priority. So we might say, this, this matters to me, but if it's not in my schedule, it doesn't actually matter to us. And so we need to actually be thoroughly convinced that this actually is commanded in Scripture. And so open this up to us as a group, and I'm assuming that we're all here, but just so we start off together, what would you say are some scriptural commands, instructions in scripture that would undergird this commitment? We say it's, it's a value to invest into the, the next generation coming up, pastoral leadership, and this, this, I'm, this is a softball, I'm not looking for, this is not a trick question, what would you say are some key texts that would support this calling? 2 Timothy 2.2, yeah. Not limited to one. What are there others? The pastoral epistles. <laughs> <Yeah>. All of them. <laughs> yeah. In their entirety. Yeah. Any others? Again, not fishing. Great, great commission. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Model, simplify. Acts 20. Yeah, Paul's, Paul's, Paul's engagement with the elders and Paul was able maybe be there to do all the grassroots work, but he was going to pour into. Yeah. I think of Ephesians 4, too. What's the job description essentially given in Ephesians 4? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so you think about, there's so many different texts in scripture that really undergird this calling. And so, and not to belabor the point, but the first one mentioned, 2 Timothy 2 2. Well, you've heard in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men 
with each other also. And uh, I think what's helpful about that command, entrust, is offering to someone or commending to someone for the sake of safekeeping. And so think about what, what is the best way to protect the gospel? It's not to insulate it or isolate it from others. It's actually to hand it off to faithful men. Entrust to faithful men. And so the best way for gospel multiplication is to hand the gospel off to faithful men. And that's Paul's charge to Timothy. Entrust to faithful men who will essentially teach others also so that this ministry of multiplication continues. But this is our biblical mandate. So I'm going to just assume that we're all there. We recognize that this is clearly commanded in Scripture. It might take on kind of a different look based on the church and the pastor. But we, we need to recognize that this is a fundamental calling that we have as pastors. And so I want this to be very practical, helpful. And I have three paradigms uh, for us today to consider. It's been said before that uh, some of their minds are like spaghetti and others are like waffles. And uh, some tend to be kind of like box thinkers. And I tend to be like a waffle thinker. I tend to think in boxes. And so this may not be helpful. Hopefully it is. I have three paradigms for you today, kind of my box thinking. And I hope this is a helpful way for you to kind of think about discipleship and leadership training in the local church. It's been very helpful for me thinking these terms. And so I'm going to give uh, today three templates, or sorry, three paradigms and a template uh, to end. But we'll start with the paradigms. So number two in your note, uh, notes, the discipleship pyramid. And there are three, as you can tell from the picture, um, there are three major kind of aspects or realms of the discipleship pyramid. And so if you start with the base, Informal discipleship, the question really is, how are we equipping all the saints in the local church uh, to make disciples, but also to be disciples? And so one of the, the key questions is, how are we helping everybody that calls your church home, how are, we, how are we helping them become more like Jesus? And so through through sermons, through classes, through small groups, how are we leveraging everything we do for the sake of discipleship? So this is really the informal discipleship, informal ministry training. And so how are your sermons, how are your classes, how, are, how is everything you're doing uh, helping your church family grow in the likeness of Christ. And I've, I've come to believe that there are three major movements to the discipleship process. I think, first and foremost, our responsibility is to teach people to think and believe biblically. So for this, theology. And so the first major movement, I believe, in discipleship is theology, helping people think and believe uh, biblically. But then, secondly, we have a responsibility to teach people to live biblically. For that, spirituality. So theology undergirds spirituality. You can't really separate the two of these. But theology leading to spirituality. And so helping people think biblically, live biblically. And then third, equipping people to do the same in the lives of others. So not only do we want people to live biblically and think biblically, we want to help people help others to do that. We want people to multiply in the lives of others and refer to that as ministry. And so theology, spirituality, ministry, those really being the three major movements of the discipleship process. And so the question being in the kind of ground level in formal ministry training, how are we as a church doing that? How are we as a church equipping people to think biblically, to live biblically, and equipping them to actually minister to the lives of others? And as a pastor, we should be thinking about how, how, is, how is my preaching, how is my teaching, small groups are part of, equipping that kind of movement in the local church. And one thing that I've found helpful is, is thinking about that in terms of all uh, of the initiatives you give yourself to. But one thing I think that's really helpful for pastors is, is to have an invitation-based small group. Meaning which, it, it, think about your church, think about people come, come to your church, who, who's a handful, handful of guys, three to twelve guys, that I can invest some time into. These aren't guys that I necessarily think are going to be pastors someday, maybe not even elders someday. But who are, who's a handful of guys that I can say, okay, let's meet twice a month, 
uh, a book we're going to go through, study some scripture, memorize some scripture, just discuss the life together. I have yet to have a guy turn me down on that invitation. It most likely will happen someday. But I've found that people that are kind of, where you sense they'll have some aptitude, uh, some, some appetite for that, some desire for that, it's usually warmly received. Men are, men are looking for that sort of investment. So look around your church, pray. Uh, who are, who's a handful of guys that you can invest yourself into? And I think that's the, the kind of baseline, foundational aspect of ministry training. But then if you go up a layer from there, formal discipleship, the question is how are we equipping uh, the people in our church to minister in the various realms of their game. So think about Sunday school teachers and children's ministry workers, youth workers, and small group leaders, you name it. If anybody has a formal role in the church, elder or deacon, what are we doing to more formally equip them and empower them in the role that they've been given? And what I've kind of discovered is that we're relatively weak on this. We don't do very well at equipping people for ministry. And a, a really help, helpful book, J.I. Packer and Gary Parrott wrote a book, Grounded in the Gospel. I would commend it to you. It's quite helpful. Um, but they, they lament the, the absence of what they call catechesis in the, in the local church. And uh, they begin the book with a story of how uh, a person they knew converted to Judaism and another person con converted to Catholicism. And they talked about how the process for these two individuals, uh, though different faiths, it was largely the same that they would meet with a rabbi or a priest, respectively. They had weeks and weeks and weeks of meetings in which they were taught basic doctrine. And he was talking about this extensive process. But then he said, you contrast that with the average Protestant church. And they write to begin the book, compare such stories to what happens in many evangelical churches today. How might we greet a visitor at the doors of one of our churches? If we notice a newcomer at all, we might bid her welcome, hand her a bulletin, and point her to a seat. If she visited the church a second or third time, some well-intentioned member of the church might be found already trying to persuade this new member to become a Sunday school teacher. But have you not found that to be the case in the local church? That oftentimes we're quite weak, not just on catechesis, but ministry training itself. And so this is a, a much, uh, this is a big need in the local church that we think about not just foundational discipleship, but also how we're equipping people for ministry and service. So what are we doing to equip elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, uh, and the like. And then the last realm on top would be vocational discipleship. And this would be essentially the, the cherry on the top. We can't, so this is the point being, it's the culture underneath that undergirds the healthy uh, ministry training on top. And uh, I think one of the convicting realities is that if we're void of leadership on top, it means we're void of discipleship on the bottom. And so if you're, if you're missing healthy leadership on top, and there's been a, an absence of leadership on the top. It most likely indicates there's been a void of discipleship on the bottom. Especially if you think about the middle realm. If there's an absence of healthy small group leaders or teachers or the like, most likely it means that there's been neglect on the bottom. And so if there's a leadership void, there's most likely a, a discipleship void somewhere in the process. And so this is how I understand the discipleship process, if you will, discipleship pyramid, and that leads to then how do we kind of implement this as it relates to the pastoral calling. And so number three, you know, it's the pastoral imperatives. When I was um, in my studies at GRTS, I had a professor who challenged us in class and said, Paul actually never commanded the church to evangelize. And uh, as you can imagine, I had a little bit of pushback to that. Most of my classmates did. And I've come to strongly disagree with my professor. For instance, I think when Paul commanded Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. 
I think that counts. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, this professor made the, the point, he said, based on grammatical imperatives, um, there's not a command in the scriptures. Regardless, uh, that point really got me thinking. Um, what do we do in terms of church that's, that's based on our personal preferences and conveniences, and how much of what we do is actually based on study of the imperatives of scripture, what God has actually commanded us to do? And what would happen if we actually studied the imperatives of scripture, specifically the pastoral commands, the pastoral imperatives? How would our thinking change in terms of how we approach pastoral leadership in the local church? And so if we isolated the pastoral commands, the pastoral imperatives, what sort of paradigm would we walk away with? What sort of priorities would we walk away with? So that was a, a, a research burden of mine a few years ago. It kind of flowed out of this issue in class. But I want to present to you today a, a four-part paradigm, if you will, of the pastoral imperatives. Because when we're going to talk about training up pastors, we actually need to have a target of what we're aiming at. What, what does it actually look like to have faithful and healthy pastors in the local church? And so I'll offer this to you as, in terms of framework, kind of, flew, was, kind of came out of my study of the pastoral imperatives. But I believe there's four major realms of the pastoral calling. And talk about this today mostly because of this informs how we train up pastors. And so I believe it begins with healthy spirituality, biblical spirituality, or the pastor as saint. You think about the pastoral qualifications in Paul's letter to Timothy. What is basically all of the pastoral qualifications, with the exception of apt to teach? What's it all related to? Character. That's right. There's essentially one competency, apt to teach, and the rest of it is all character. And so pastors are to be godly men, men after God's own heart. And so that's what we are to be known for. This is a character profession. It is a big deal that the leaders of Christ's church be men of God. And so this should be our burden, personally as pastors, and also for training men, that, that the men we're training be men of God. Robert Murray McShane says, not so much great talent that God blesses as great likeness to Jesus. And so that's the sort of men we should desire to be, men who love Christ and are like Christ. And so that should be our burden, that should be our heart. And you think about, obviously, Paul's commands to Timothy throughout, watch your life and your doctrine close. Why? What's he say? By so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. And But it's also even holistic. Paul's instructions for Timothy were even about his personal health as well. He, he gave Timothy, for instance, instruction, instructions about drinking a little wine. Or in the Baptist Bible, I think it's grape juice. Um, <laughs> um, but drinking a little wine, and it wasn't just to, come over the, to, get, to get over the Monday blues. It was most likely medicinal purposes. And so Paul was concerned about Timothy's health in general. And so how we are as people really, really matters. And so this is the foundation of pastoral health, biblical spirituality. And so this is, should be our uh, great priority. We should guard our hearts. In the words of the great theologian Johnny Cash, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. And so this should be our burden. This should be our priority, that uh, we keep a close watch on our own hearts, guarding our hearts, living a life of godliness and uprightness, and equipping others for that sort of walk as well. Secondly, biblical proclamation, the pastor as herald. Uh, Paul gave Timothy this charge. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, what? Preach. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I believe ministry of the word is central to the pastoral office. And ministry of the word, more dynamic than just preaching, most certainly preaching, preaching, teaching, counseling, the ministry of the word. So we should be people who are committed to the ministry of the word. And you think about Acts 6, when the apostles began to be taxed, 
they set aside certain ministry for the deacons so that they give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. We need to prioritize the ministry of the word. So God calls the preacher, and we are called as pastors to equip the preachers. And so I believe the call of the preacher is from God himself, but we can grow in preaching aptitudes. And actually Erasmus said, if elephants can be trained to dance, lions to play, and leopards to hunt, surely preachers can be taught to preach. <laughs> and so certainly this involves a heavenly calling, but we also play a role in equipping other preachers for preaching itself. And so that's a key calling in a certain residency or training initiative for pastors. Thirdly is biblical care, or the pastor as shepherd. Uh, Paul also instructed Timothy, first of all, then urged that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. The question is, do we see prayer as a first of all sort of priority? And I've come to believe that the, the essence of pastoral care is to pray for and pray with the people of God. The essence of pastoral care being praying for and praying with the people of God. And Paul's instructions to Timothy would indicate that we are to be people who care. Be people who love the word and especially love the people of God. And so we're people who love God and love his people, giving ourselves to the word and to prayer. I think the best way we pray for people, or the best way we care for people is by praying. But nevertheless, the last uh, of the four responsibilities being biblical leadership or the pastor as overseer, Paul also instructed Timothy, or gave qualifications of the elder, he must manage his own household well. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so the pastor is to be an exemplary leader in the home and the church, a model for others to follow. And in some sense, leadership, or discussion about leadership is kind of all the rage. And even think in the kind of public square or in the public realm, there's a lot of books and resources on leadership. Some of them helpful, others not so much. Uh, but one written within the last few decades or so was uh, Jim Collins. Um, he had built to last, but also good to great. And in those resources, he identified kind of the major movements of leadership and kind of the, the apex of great leadership, in his words, is this level five leader. And his portrait of this level five leader, kind of the best of the best leaders, is the, the descriptions that he gave for this level five leader is that he's humble, he's a servant, and he's more committed to the mission than he is to himself. You think about biblical portraits and leaders. Does that not give, a, in many respects, somewhat of a biblical portrait of leadership? We're to be humble servant leaders. And you think about the ultimate servant leader. This is not a trick question, but Sunday school answer. Who's the ultimate servant leader? <laughs> Jesus, always oh, say answer in church. Um, Jesus, Christ himself, is the ultimate servant leader. And so if we want to learn true biblical leadership, we need to look to Christ himself, the ultimate Leader. So we should give ourselves to what God has commanded, his rhythms and his responsibility, the, the priorities that he's established in scripture, biblical spirituality, biblical proclamation, biblical care, uh, and biblical leadership. So those priorities should then inform um, how we go about training in the local church. And so how then do we equip men for these various responsibilities in the local church? And that's number four, training lots of pastors. And lots being an acronym, L-O-T-S, look at it in just a second. But um, a couple of years ago, I, I used to play basketball early morning. We have a middle school near where I live, and um, pick up basketball early in the morning. And there was a guy that played with us that was like probably nearing 90 years old. And so, as you can imagine, he was not super spry and uh, not very fast, but he loved to take the ball up the court. And um, so, as you can imagine, it took a long time for the ball <laughs> to get up the court. 
And at, at the time, I was in my 20s and a little bit more spry than he was. And so I thought, you know what, this is ridiculous. So I would, I would actually cut, almost like cut the pass off and take it and then take it up the court. And I did that like three or four times. And then finally this guy, he, he stood right in front of me. He looked me right in the eyes and said, Ethan, this is the only time I touched the ball. <laughs> he didn't like that very much. The, the point being, there are reasonable times to pass the ball. And I think one of the time, one of the reasons that we struggle in leadership development is we're fearful to pass the ball. We think, well, they'll, they'll dribble off their shoe. They'll mess up. They won't do it as good as I will. But I think if we're really going to train up leaders, we need to learn to pass the ball. And if we're going to commit to this sort of rhythm, if we're going to commit to this priority of investing ourselves in leaders, we need to learn to pass the ball. And uh, there's four rhythms, I think, that are helpful as it relates to passing the ball or as it relates to equipping leaders. And uh, learning, observing, testing, and supervising are those rhythms that uh, fills out an acronym LOTS. And so let's think about each of these in turn. First of which is learning. And um, there are many ways that we can learn, obviously, you know, lectures and, and the like. One of the, I think, a very helpful way for us to learn as pastors is through reading. It's been said before that leaders are readers, and I think that's very true. And so we should really model for our church family what it means to be a faithful and effective reader. And if you've never read the book, How to Read a Book, I would commend it to you. I think it officially makes you a nerd once you read it. But um, it's a great resource. And actually in the example curriculum that I'm going to offer to you uh, at the end of this, it's the first book that I suggest residents read. Um, it's just an actually, if we're going to be good readers, and if we're going to read a lot, we should really know how to read. It sounds elementary, but the resource is actually very, very helpful. And uh, a quote from this book, it's written by Mortimer Adler and Charles Van Doren. And they say, the great majority of the several million books that have been written in the Western tradition alone, more than 99% of them, will not make sufficient demands on you or improve your skill in reading. In fact, you do not have to read them, analytically at least, at all. Skimming will do. You should, though, seek out the few books that can have this inexhaustible value for you. They're the books that will teach you the most both about reading and about life. They're the books to which you will want to return to over and over. They're the books that will help you to grow. And so we should be a group of men that are committed to learning and also helping others to learn as well. And so if we're going to commit to reading books, we should commit to reading the very best books. The curriculum that I'll suggest to you at the end has been vetted by some long-term pastors and has what I believe to be some really great pastoral resources. But nevertheless, one of the key rhythms of training is learning. Secondly is observing. And uh, Robert Coleman, in his book, Master Plan of Evangelism, says, those of us who are seeking to train people must be prepared to have them follow us even as we follow Christ. And so we should be willing to have men follow us. And you think about the pastoral life. Most of the pastoral disciplines, most of the pastoral life is observable. I mean, there are times in which we need to be private, um, but much of what we do as pastors is something that somebody else can come along for and I think one of the questions that's posed in Scripture that should haunt us is the question that Jethro posed to Moses. Why are you doing this alone? Why are you doing this alone? And there's so much that we're doing as pastors that we're doing alone that we could bring somebody else along. It wouldn't cost us anything. But they'd come, they could watch us visit, they could watch us counsel, they could watch us study, I guess, they could watch us preach, teach, you name it. The various pastoral disciplines can be observed. And so you don't have to add anything into your schedule. Just think about, what am I doing that somebody else can come along for? Why, why are you doing this alone? And then third, testing. So learning, observing, testing. Brian Croft in his book, Test, Train, and Affirm, 
He writes, a practical definition of testing is the placing of an individual into different real-life circumstances to see how he or she handles them. The best way to test men for the office of pastor, therefore, is to evaluate them and those life circumstances according to qualifications for this office clearly mapped out for us in Scripture. And so one of the helpful things we can do as we're thinking about training men for ministry is just giving men practical experience, opportunities uh, for ministry itself, whether it be preaching, teaching, counseling, visitation, or the like. Men who we sense have, have a call to ministry, men who have the character that fits that calling, giving them opportunities to kind of get their feet wet, if you will, in ministry. But it's not just about getting experience, but evaluating experience, which makes the last movement especially important, supervising. This means that if we're actually going to play an active role in equipping men for ministry, we actually need to be alongside of them and actually need to provide them feedback along the way. And a, a helpful book uh, is entitled Design to Lead by Eric Geiger and Kevin Peck. And they, they write, Most churches struggle with providing feedback under the guise of being kind and gentle. But not providing feedback is cruel. It is the kisses of the enemy that are excessive and the wounds of a friend that are trustworthy. And so we need to learn to be people who, who give uh, faithful feedback. Uh, not to be mean or harsh, but men who speak the truth in love. And so if we're going to have men a learning ministry under us or beside us, we need to learn how to speak to them in love. That's affirm strengths, but also point out weaknesses as well. And uh, I think there are some organizations and individuals that are doing these sort of things really well. And uh, one organization I think that is engaging these rhythms really well is uh, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, ACBC. I know there's different perspectives on counseling probably represented in this room. But just to kind of give an example of how this looks for some, uh, ACBC has a fairly robust process for training uh, individuals for counseling. They have a certification process. And uh, just thinking through the lens of these four movements, learning, observing, testing, and supervising. So what this looks like for ACBC, they're training people in counseling. So for learning, they have their certified counselor. This, this is kind of at the lay level, so this is in the local church. In learning, they have uh, those that are going to be certified in counseling have to read 1,000 pages related to counseling. They also have to listen to, I think it's 30 hours, total hours, on lectures related to biblical counseling. So you have lectures and reading as part of the learning phase. But then also observing, you're also required to watch, uh, either live or through video, 10 hours of counseling. So they also observe counseling. And then testing, ACBC counselors are expected to fill out two exams that are essay-based. There's 20-some questions in each, each exam, and they're expected to write a page to a page and a half for each question. So it comes out to be about 60 pages of writing for those who end up certifying. And then the last thing we have supervising, uh, every person that's certified through ACBC has to go through 50 hours of supervised counseling. So they have a, a, a fellow, somebody who's been counseling for a long time that observes. Uh, they're not necessarily in the room, but they give feedback uh, based on audio recordings or just feedback after the counseling case. And so I think that just provides a, a template, uh, an illustration, if you will, of how this is actually being done for the, by those who are um, really raising up leaders, equipping leaders for ministry. Now, in your notes, there's um, the last point is number five, a template worth considering. There's a website on the very bottom um, of your handout that gives a, um, access to, I think I have nine or ten different handouts through that web link. And one of them is actually a residency uh, curriculum. And this is what I had multiple pastors help me with and kind of vetting. Um, and I propose a, a two-year residency curriculum to you. And um, one of the questions is, why, why a two-year residency? Um, a couple of years ago, uh, Jerry Seinfeld was uh, interviewing with the New York Times, and he confessed uh, that he had been working two years on a Pop-Tart joke. 
And uh, he, he said, uh, it's actually quite ridiculous that I would waste so much time on something so stupid. That's exactly what people want me to do. <laughs> waste my time on something so stupid so that they can find it funny. <laughs> and um, if Jerry Seinfeld is willing to waste two years of his life on a Pop-Tart joke, how much more so should we be willing to waste two years of our lives investing into men for gospel ministry? And so I think two years provides a, a pretty good time frame, allowing somebody uh, to be able to kind of observe their character in action but also an opportunity to invest in somebody in a pretty deep way. And so the template that I've given you in through that link is a, a fairly robust two-year residency curriculum that's kind of filled out. And so if, if you're trying to develop this on your own, what I would encourage you to do is take those lots, um, kind of rhythms of healthy training, learning, observing, testing, supervising, what you sense to be the major priorities of pastoral ministry, and then fill it out. That's essentially what I did with this residency curriculum. And I, I offer to you as a Word document. This is something you can take, edit if you want, take resources out, add resources in, uh, no credit uh, needed, uh, but meant to be a, a resource for local church. I would be honored and blessed if this gets utilized uh, in a local church, and like I said, no credit needed uh, for me. Um, but there's other resources on there. There's uh, eight or nine other handouts on there that should be of help as it relates to this. There's one page that's just helpful resources, books that I've found helpful as it relates to this discussion. So hopefully some of those resources you find helpful along the way. Uh, but I do want to and at least in this discussion, um, with a word of encouragement, there's a helpful book that was published uh, through the Gospel Coalition, or connected to the Gospel Coalition this past year, and it's called The Care of Souls. And in this book, The Care of Souls, he says, if you've been worried that you don't quite have it all together in ministry, or that others are savvier when it comes to theology, lighten up on yourself. If you don't have all the answers, join the crowd. The best pastors among us are ones who realize how little they actually know and how much more they have to master concerning the art of the care of souls. And so we should be expert learners, always learning, recognizing our need for growth. And we must also be burdened to help those who are further back in the learning journey. So let's be a, men, a group of men who are passionate and encouraged, deeply devoted to this sacred task. Amen? Amen.